welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. It is a blessing to be here with you this morning. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In the past few weeks, we have seen how the Creator God is revealing Himself to His creatures, to His creation, specifically to His people. The Spirit of God inspired the heart and mind of Moses to write these words in Genesis to the people of Israel after their deliverance from Egypt, but prior to their entrance into the Promised Land. Moses writes that a good God created a good world filled with good creatures, and ultimately created man to bear God's image and to enjoy perfect relationship with God, others, and creation forever. We also spent some time developing biblical themes that find their foundation in Genesis. We focused on the biblical theme that the Father, Son, and Spirit were all present and active in creation. In fact, of the Son, we later read that without Him was not anything made that was made. The Scriptures repeatedly affirm that the Son is equal to the Father in glory, power, and eternality. Therefore, God has always existed in perfect unity as Father, Son, and Spirit. We also focused on the biblical theme of God's intentionality and design in forming and filling this world. This world and specifically humanity are, are no accident. We have a designer. We have purpose. We are not from nothing, for nothing, which then turns to nothing in the end. And last week, we looked at the theme of being made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were given the amazing privilege and responsibility of representing God on earth. But through the fall... Sin corrupted the image of God in us leaving, us, leaving us hopelessly lost and undone. But then, the Son of God enters history being born as a man. Through His perfect life, He fulfills mankind's purpose, and through His death, He pays the penalty for our failures, offering us peace with God through faith in Him. My hope this morning is to again take you through this process of showing you these three things. First, showing you the meaning of the text. So we will look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 in detail. Then, showing you the biblical themes that have their roots in this passage. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Genesis is a book of foundations. And then finally, showing you how these themes point to Christ crucified as the foundation of our joy as Christians. Because that is the foundation of our joy. With this in mind, let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 together. We have just come through chapter 1, the creation account of the first six days. The sixth day ends... And we read this, Thus the heavens and the earth 
were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that You will bless the reading and the proclamation of Your Word this morning. Would You give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you are good. Would you help us to understand your word and would you please help all those listening to understand as I seek to explain the word to the best of my ability. May your spirit take what is done here today and would you do a glorious thing in each one of us. Would no one here leave today with an unbelieving heart, but instead would your word and the spirit of God drive us to belief and obedience in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever put a lot of sweat and tears into a project around your home? Now, wives, I'm not talking about your husbands. I'm more talking about things like a family working together to change the landscape of a garden. Or a husband carving and shaping a beautiful table out of rough planks of wood. Or a wife planting a vegetable garden that then produces food for her family. Often these projects take several days or weeks to complete. And sometimes we're in the midst of the project. We wonder if the amount of effort involved will even be worth it in the end. But there comes a day, if you finish the project, there comes a day... When you finally finish the project, the mess you made is cleaned up, the garden tools or the woodworking tools are all put away, and you find yourself a place to sit, putting your feet up so that you can simply admire and enjoy the beautiful finished product product that is in front of you. That feeling of satisfaction, completion, and joy is a taste of what we will be studying this morning. Because when God finished His work of creation, He rested. On days 1 through 6, God alone formed and filled a good world. Our God steps onto the scene and fashions everything, including time itself, all for His glory and for the joy of His people. Genesis 1 is a written record of the one true God, the only Creator God, who is sovereign over all things, who has no competitor, no equal opponent. Moses is declaring to the people of Israel that the gods of Egypt from where where they have been delivered and the gods of Canaan to where they are going, that these gods all exist as created beings. The sun, moon, and stars, the crocodiles and hippos of the Nile, the wild cats of the desert, and the great sea creatures that terrify the coastal peoples in Canaan in the promised land, all these are created beings. Beings made by the one creator God and all were made for the benefit of man originally. How foolish is it then for the Israelites to fear these things and make images of the creation, then bowing down and worshiping these idols which represent the creation. These things, these beings that were all designed to serve and bless man. How foolish is that for them to do that? And Moses is trying to explain 
this to, to the Israelites to show them even the fallen angels. This is where it gets more intense for Israelites, for those who maybe saw demonic activity in Egypt, even fallen angels who prop up wicked rulers though, like Pharaoh and the kings of Canaan, even demons which, demons which present themselves in the minds of pagans as ferocious beasts, not even they can stretch out their hand to touch God's people unless the Creator God who made the angels in the beginning permits it. Israel was not to fear these beings, nor the creation, because their God, the Creator God, still reigns in the heavens and He has no equal. Worship Him alone. That's what Moses is saying to the Israelites. This is where we jump into Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, which mirrors the very first verse in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. So they're mirroring one another, the opening and the close. God began His creation project, and now we see the beautiful finished product. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, it's as if God steps back from His creative work and experiences a divine feeling of satisfaction, completion, and joy at the beautiful work of His hands. Genesis 2, verse 2 says this, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So when the sixth day of work comes to an end, with the setting of the sun, and the seventh day begins, it's as if God has put away the tools. Everything is in its place, and He rests from His creative work because everything that He willed to make had been made, and it was all very good, as we saw in the verse before. Two helpful things to recognize in verse 2. First, the significance of the number 7. As you move through Scripture, the number 7 increasingly takes on symbolic significance. In most cases, when you see the number 7 emphasized in the text, the writer is usually trying to get across the idea of fullness, completeness, or totality. In all the Scriptures, the number 7 is the most significant, playing a major role in developing the themes within the story of redemption. The second helpful thing to recognize in verse 2 is the meaning of the word rest. The word rest is a translation of the Hebrew word sabbat, which means to stop or to cease from a certain activity. We shouldn't read into this word the idea of catching your breath or recovering from exhaustion. These may be valid effects, um, side effects from the rest that humans might take. But when God rests from His work, it means that He ceased His original creative activity in order to celebrate the completion of His creative work. Remember, He said before this, He saw it and it was very good in His sight, in His mind, and now He rests and rejoices over His completed work. 
With these two points in mind, the emphasis of verses 1 and 2 become clear. On the seventh day, the full, complete, and ultimate day, God rested. He ceased His creative work and rejoiced over it because it was finished. And it was very good. On the seventh day, God steps back from His creative work and experiences this divine feeling of satisfaction, completion, and joy at the beautiful work of His hands. But He doesn't stop there. Verse 3 tells us even more. It says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. As an expression of God's joy and celebration over the work of His hands, He does two things on the seventh day. First, He blesses the seventh day. But what does it mean to bless a day? We saw this phrase earlier in chapter 1 when God first blesses the creatures with the ability to reproduce and fill the earth. And then he later blesses Adam and Eve with the ability to reproduce more image bearers who would also fill the earth. But how can God bless a day this way? Was this day going to be longer than other days or be able to produce more days of its own? Within the theme of blessing, I suggest it is best to understand the blessing of the seventh day as God declaring physical and spiritual fruitfulness over this day. This follows most closely the concept of fruitfulness which God blessed creatures and man with earlier in chapter 1. And the blessing of fruitfulness was not for the day itself. It was not for that day itself It is clear throughout the creation account that everything that God did was for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. For this reason, when God blesses a day with fruitfulness, He is saying that the people of God who celebrate this day of rest with God will share in the blessed condition of this day. It's for the good of of His people and the glory of His name, that He blesses this day. Second, God made the seventh day holy. To make or declare something holy is to separate and to elevate the holy thing from its companions, from the other days, and unto God in a special way. So when God makes the seventh day holy, He is separating it from the other six days and is elevating it above the other days as a special day unto himself. It is God's day, in a way unlike any of the six days before it. With all this in mind, look with me again at chapter 2, verse 3, because there is something in the text that is shouting at us through silence. Verse 3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That is it. That's all it says. That's the end of the creation account. Verse 4 is going to completely change directions and focus on day 6 of the creation account going back in order to study in more detail the crowning event of creation, the creation of man. So verse 3 is the end of the orderly account of creation that we've been studying for four weeks. So stay with me with this train of thought. This is the end of the account. But this account has been very intentional and methodical throughout. 
There is poetry, rhythm, and a lot of grammatical beauty in the intentionality of the writer that I just haven't had enough time to be able to point out every facet of this chapter. This account is a beautiful masterpiece of literary art. Each word is chosen with purpose, and there are words left out with purpose. Throughout the account, the first six days end in the exact same way. It says, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day. And when we get to the seventh day, God and God rests, blessing this day and making it holy, you would be right to expect that this masterpiece of literary art would end and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. That would be natural to expect that. But that's not what happens. Instead, the seventh day has no end. Was this just an oversight? Did the biblical writer make a mistake, run out of ink, or think it was unimportant to finish the pattern that he had so carefully woven into the fabric of the creation account? Since we believe that God is the author of all Scripture, and since we believe He is without fault, it's not a reach for us to stop and take note of this clear break in the pattern of creation. Especially if you remember that chapter and verse divisions were not part of the original manuscript. Chapters and verses are later inventions to help the reader of God's Word not get lost as they navigate the many pages of Scripture. So without the artificial chapter breaks, you begin to see that the seventh day is part of the flow of thought that came before, but that it is intentionally set apart from those days. It is a day in which God rested, a day He blessed unlike any other, a day which is made holy, and a day that has no end in the account. Yes, the earth kept rotating. There was night and day, but the conditions of the seventh day rest were designed to never end. With this in mind, you begin to see what it is that God has created and invited Adam and Eve into. God made a perfect world with everything Adam and Eve need. There is no pain, no sorrow, no weary toiling in the ground just to receive little in return. No, God made the world so that it would produce everything for Adam and Eve and that the work of their hands would only be a joy to them. And on top of this, on top of this, Adam and Eve were welcomed into the seventh day, which was designed to never end. They were welcomed into the divine rest of God, which means they could rest in God's completed work of creation. They would be His blessed people and His holy people because they dwelt with Him in the conditions of the seventh day rest. Now is it possible that Adam and Eve observed the seven-day week cycle, tending the garden on the first six days of the week, then doing no work on the seventh day because it was a holy day of worship to God? Is this possible? Yes, it is possible that they observe this cycle. But nothing in Scripture gives us that impression. In fact, Scripture seems to be pointing us to another reality. The reality that Adam and Eve were invited into this perfect world and into the perfect divine rest with no laws, 
no rules, no observances, no rituals, no religious calendar, and no restrictions on activities on certain holy days. There was only one exception to the rules that they were to follow. They were to never eat of the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is the only restriction that Adam and Eve had. So we see that they were created to multiply, to have dominion, and to rejoice in their Creator God. That was their purpose. They were not created for the purpose of observing holy days. They were created to enter into perfect relationship and perfect rest eternally with their God. For this reason, I suggest to you that the seventh day was a real day. It was a real day. But that it was designed to be the beginning of humanity's entrance into God's divine rest. That was its purpose. It was not just a holy day once a week. Instead, in the original creation, the seventh day represents the condition of eternal divine rest. And that is what Adam and Eve were originally welcomed into. That Adam and Eve ultimately rejected God's divine rest. And through the rebellion, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and ended up spending their short lives toiling in the ground until they died and returned to the dirt that they were made of. However, as we move through the pages of Genesis, there is hope in the midst of humanity's rebellion. God repeatedly intervenes in history to restrain human depravity and call undeserving sinners into relationship with Him. God first spares Adam and Eve from immediate death, which was their due consequence of their sin. He spares them that and then provides them a covering for their shame, while also giving them a hint of a promise that their, that their adversary, the serpent, would one day be crushed by one of Eve's descendants. God spares Noah and his family, blessing them and prom promising to never again destroy the entire earth with a flood. God spares the rebels at the Tower of Babel who thought that they could reverse the curse and reach back up into heaven through the, their own ingenuity. God calls Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and promises to bless him to such an extent that all the families of the earth would be blessed through his descendants. And then God promises or repeats his promise of blessing to Isaac and then to Jacob, who is later given the name Israel. Centuries later, Moses is leading the people of Israel, so this large this nation, that, this descendants of Jacob, who we call the people of Israel. He's leading, Moses is leading them out of Egypt and into the wilderness where God meets them at Mount Sinai. And there, God enters into a covenant with the people of Israel, promising to allow them to enter His rest, the promised land, if they will obey His laws by faith. God promises them that if they will be faithful to Him like a pure bride, then He will bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where the wild beasts will not devour, where their enemies will run from them, a land where the crops will grow and the rain will fall, and they will enjoy prosperity and plenty because the Creator is their God and they are His people. That's what He promises them at Mount Sinai, if they will be faithful, if they will obey Him by faith. God even gives them a shadow of the divine rest, the divine eternal rest that He intends for His people. Ultimately, 
by giving them national laws that governed times of rest for them as a people. The most famous being the seventh day of rest each week called the Sabbath, on which no work could be done. But God also gave Israel other national times of rest as a shadow of this divine eternal rest that he desires for his people. He gave them seven holy feasts that were to be observed every year. Then every seven years, Israel was to observe a year of national rest where they were to let the land rest for an entire year. They were forbidden to sow the ground with seed. God promised that if they obeyed him in this and had faith in his, in his goodness to provide, that he would provide for them so generously in the sixth year that they would have enough food for three whole years and they would, have, would not have to labor in the soil for the seventh year. This is a picture, a picture, or almost as if they were in the Garden of Eden enjoying God's rest for a whole year. They did not have to dig and plow and sweat in the soil. God was going to be their God and He was going to provide as a picture of what He ultimately wanted for His people. Then, as another sign unto them, after seven times seven years, okay, it starts getting confusing, but he's talking about every, after, after 49 years had passed, there was to be a 50th year called the year, a year of Jubilee. This was the biggest year on their national calendar. In this year, slaves were released, debts were forgiven, and land that may have been sold due to your poverty would be returned to the original owner of the land because God's land, this, this land that was supposed to be like the Garden of Eden, and he, as He reigned over this people, it, the land was not allowed to be sold unto someone else forever. It would not be, if you were so poor that you had, had to sell your land, it would not leave your family forever. At the year of Jubilee, it would be returned to your family this is a picture of God's restoration that he desires for his people. This year of Jubilee was a picture, was a shadow of the future restoration that God desires for his people. A restoration to perfect rest that would have no end. But if you are familiar with the story of the Israelites in the wilderness and then in the promised land, you know that they as a nation ultimately rebelled against God as their king and rejected the rest that he offered them in the promised land, this place that was supposed to be like the Garden of Eden for them. They did not keep his Sabbath days, annual feasts, year of rest, or keep his year of jubilee. And because they rejected God's rest, they too were cast out of the promised land, the place that was supposed to be like the Garden of Eden. They were exiled to the east, just like Adam and Eve outside of God's rest. Over and over in history, we see that mankind has failed as a whole. Mankind has failed to enter God's rest and remain there on their own or through their own works. But God, rich in mercy, returns the exiles to their land and sets the stage for his divine rest to fill the earth once more. 
is at this point in history that Jesus comes onto the scene and begins his public ministry on a Sabbath day. He enters a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and is given the opportunity to read from the scroll of Isaiah. We read the account in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Jesus reading this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor is a phrase that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 61 to describe the year of years when God would pour out his mercy and his grace on his people in abundance. It is a time when God will restore His people and bring them into His rest. In fact, most Old Testament scholars believe that Isaiah envisioned the ultimate year of Jubilee, when God would finally dwell with His people and welcome them into His divine rest as He originally intended. Jesus begins His public ministry by opening the scroll of Isaiah, turning to this passage reading it and stating that He is the Anointed One who was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the ultimate year of Jubilee, where God's people will finally be freed from their bondage and welcomed into God's eternal rest. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on not only to proclaim the coming of this rest, but He also proclaims that this divine rest is found in Him. In Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, we read that Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what the Old Testament kept pointing to? That the Israelites wanted rest for their souls. Jesus says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light jesus is calling on all people to come to him to find the rest in him all those who are trying to earn a ticket into god's eternal rest through following a set of laws are carrying a burden that will ultimately crush them because no man can carry the burden of their own sin or the burden of God's righteous standard. Jesus is telling us that we must all abandon our futile efforts to earn God's favor by the merit of our own works, and instead that we must all put our faith in Him to carry the burden of our failure, to carry the burden of God's righteous standard, to carry the burden of God's wrath against our sin, because only God could carry, could bear this burden, and then still live. Only God could do this. As you study the Gospels, you begin to see that Jesus is the only one through whom the people of God can enter 
into his divine eternal rest. He is the one who brings the ultimate year of jubilee, the ultimate year of rest, the ultimate life-giving feast, and the ultimate Sabbath rest for the people of God. He accomplished the work of salvation that we could not. And as he hung on the cross, dying, he cried out, It is finished. His redemptive work on the earth was done, and on the seventh day he rested in the tomb from his work. He rested on the seventh day. But this is not where the story ends. Because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of a new week and opened the doors to God's eternal rest for his people. All those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ begin to experience his rest now. We are forgiven made into a new creation, given access to the throne of grace, filled by the Holy Spirit, and empowered to be God's representatives again on the earth. As Christ changes us into His image, our work here on earth can become joyful again. Because we are resting in His promise to ultimately reward us, no matter the outcome here on earth. The decay of our bodies and the brokenness of our world will no longer cause us to despair because we are resting in God's promise to restore us with glorified bodies on the new earth one day. And even suffering persecution for the sake of Christ will lose its terror for us. Fear will leave as our hearts rest in the eternal joy that we will share with the King who rewards those who suffered for His name if we rest in Him, if we obey by faith. And this time, this time that we're experiencing right now where our, our work is hard, we experience back-breaking work, our bodies become frail and broken, This world seems like it's falling apart around us. It is broken. And persecution, and the persecution that we experience, that does cause fear. It causes doubt as we think upon these things. But these things, these trials that we're facing now, these will not last forever. There is a day appointed when God will bring this age to an end, when we will fully, when He will fully welcome us into His eternal rest and when we will dwell with Him as His people in the new heavens and the new earth. But I must ask each one here today, have you found this rest for your soul? Do you know the peace that passes all understanding that can only be found in Jesus Christ? Or are you still outside God's rest, still clinging to this world that is in rebellion to God and that has rejected his rest, just like Adam and Eve rejected him and were cast out, just like Israel in the wilderness rejected his promises and failed to enter his rest. In closing, think on these words from the author of Hebrews who warns us against following Israel's example, against following the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness and who rejected God's promise, who were filled with unbelief. 
Hebrews 3, verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who were left, who left Egypt, led by, led by Moses? He's talking about the Israelites who left Egypt, were given the promises, were offered the rest in the promised land, and they rejected it because of unbelief and the deceptiveness, the deceitfulness of sin and their fear. They let fear crush their faith and they ultimately rebelled against God because of their unbelief. He's talking about them. Verse 16, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness. They did not enter in. They died in the wilderness. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? They were disobedient. Verse 19, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, God's rest, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they received did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, with those who did believe. We should be very, very aware and cautious of the danger of sitting in churches and rubbing shoulders with Christians and having societal, cultural Christianity as part of our heritage, but not actually entering into God's rest because we don't truly believe. We have not bowed the knee to the Lord of hosts. We have not put off the things that He hates and put on the things that He loves. We are actually living just like the Israelites in unbelief. And if any tribulation or trial actually came into our lives, it would become extremely obvious because we would reject Him and fall away and enter back into the wilderness, back into the world because we love it, rather than following God and maybe facing trials for the sake of entering His eternal rest. We must be careful and examine ourselves to see that we are truly in the faith. Because only those who are united by faith in Jesus Christ will enter His eternal rest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word and thank You for how You have woven a beautiful masterpiece where your son coming into this world living a righteous life 
and dying as the perfect sacrifice, only to rise again into, to, to a new day in the, on the first day so that he could welcome us into his eternal rest. I thank you for those beautiful pictures that you began all the way back in Genesis. I pray, Lord, that these, these themes, that the beauty of the picture that you are painting in your word, that it would show us the truth of your love. Show us the truth that you are the creator and that you are the savior. That these truths would, would, ex, would cause us to be filled with joy as we look at them, as we make them our own, as they seek, sink into our hearts, and then as we begin to live out our lives because of them, according to them. I pray that that would happen in our church, that we'd be filled with joy that leads to love, that leads to eternal life. Would you do that for your glory, for our good? And Lord, would we not bottle up this joy? Instead, would we spend this week praying that you'd give us opportunity and that we would be ready each day if you give us the opportunity to share the joy that we have found in Christ in your eternal rest. In Jesus' name, amen.